It was Christmas Day in 2005 when I made my first diary entry. And that's where my writing journey began. Becoming a professional writer has not been easy. But as a black writer, it's often felt like I've had to work twice as hard to prove myself and navigate the industry. So I want to create a space where black writers across all mediums can compare notes and share their experiences. I'm hoping this will become a resource for the next generation of authors, playwrights and even songwriters to discover and learn from. I'm your host, Yolanti Falhinmi, a journalist who advocates for innovation and storytelling, and this is Black Prose, the podcast where black writers talk amongst themselves. In this episode, I'll be talking to my mentor, Toby Rachel Akimbade. She's been the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Dream Nation, a social enterprise dedicated to practical dreamers, and has worked at The Guardian, Metro, Tyler Vlad Bible, and is now the managing publisher at BuzzFeed. Toby also has a very own podcast called Yellow Cup and knows a lot about going viral on social media. So Toby, Rachel, Akimbade, when did you first feel like a writer? I would say, and this might sound really cliche, but I would say when I just first started to learn how to write, like it just felt completely natural. It felt completely at home. I specifically remember writing and writing gibberish, like not really knowing what the letters do Mm. and thinking, yeah, this is it. Like, I like doing this. Even at school when it came to numbers and stuff like that, didn't pay attention to numbers. But when it came to letters, I was so eager to know how to put the words together. And to be honest, I kind of first learned how to write in, not in English, in Dutch. So, yeah. So, and then obviously at home, my parents spoke English. So for background, I wasn't born in UK. I was born in Holland, went to school in Holland. So they were teaching us how to write in, in Dutch, but at home we only spoke English. So I was fascinated by kind of like the different languages and I didn't really realize Mm. at that age what I was doing. So I think that kind of kickstarted like my obsession with words and letters and stuff like that. But was there ever a time where you didn't feel like a writer? If you're not like a world-renowned author, it can make you feel like, am I really a writer? But I always Mm. say there isn't anything as aspiring writer. If you write, you write and you're a writer. Mm. Um, If you're walking around saying I'm aspiring or aspiring, what you're saying is I'm not doing it yet Mm. or what I'm doing is not good enough yet. But when do you become good enough? When do you become accepted into this club? Honestly, it's not like being a doctor, to put it plainly. I think it's fair to say that if you've not completed your doctor's training, you're not a doctor and please don't come near me with the title (laughs) of doctor. But when it comes to some, no, all creative jobs or titles or things like that, I think dropping the word aspiring is very, very necessary for yourself. Otherwise, you're just going to be holding back and waiting to be validated by others. Mm. You don't need to be validated by others in your gift. Yeah, You've got it or you don't. And a lot of the times, a lot of people have it. So go with it and don't wait for people to start calling you that because they won't. People follow your lead. And then on another front is, like I've just mentioned, it's for others to put some respect on your name. If you're telling people I'm an aspiring writer, they're going to treat you how you've just introduced yourself. Mm. Um, I saw this on, I think, Tumblr years ago and it stuck with me. It's so cheesy. But someone said the faucet doesn't run until you turn it on. Basically the tap before set as a tap. It took me a long time to know what that was. <laughs> and, you know, that you, the water doesn't run from a tap unless you switch it on. Mm. So start writing, you know, even when it comes to writer's block, if you have writer's block, write about writer's block. Just keep on going. Mm. Don't wait for that moment to be like, yeah, this is it. I'm here. Yeah. yeah. But have you ever had like imposter syndrome or felt like, hmm, am I really a writer? Especially because you mentioned you either have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the art of writing can be learned or do you think you just have to be a natural writer and then you go run with it? Yeah, I think it would be arrogant to be like, after you said you've either got it, you don't, you don't try to improve. A hundred percent believe in improving yourself 1% every day and not um, have confidence, but not think that you know everything. I don't think any writer on earth has reached their peak. Mm. And I don't think so. As long as you've got full capacity physically and mentally, there's always something to learn. Like one of my favorite authors is Auntie Chimamanda. Reading her first book to then reading her most latest, there is always improvement. She gets better and better yeah. and better, even down to how she constructs her sentences, her stories, her, her pacing, it always improves. I'm yet to find an author or a writer or a journalist or a script writer who hasn't improved as time goes on. Mm. As long as they're able to, you know, um, 
to perform at full capacity and they're not being held down by different, you know, outside factors like business and money and people telling them to write this and that. There's always improvement. So I do believe in, I always improve myself all the time. Mm. I do everything I can to improve myself. So, yeah. So in your career journey, have you ever felt like an imposter? Yeah. And that's because of outside factors. A lot mm. of the times when people may have said something to me, I've literally had someone, a boss, literally say to me, I don't think this is for you. You should try a completely different career. I don't know why she said that. It, it did impact me mm. for maybe a week. <laughs> and then I was like, you know what? I'm going to smash it in my mm. career. And I did. This was about five years ago. Yeah. And I've done nothing but grow since then. So yeah, 100%. Sometimes what people say, if I'm watching what other people do too much, like we have to be honest about that. A lot of people don't like to admit that watching other people from a distance and you don't know their story. You're just like, how did they do that? How come I'm not? And it's not a place of jealousy. There is jealousy can exist, but mm. what I'm talking about isn't jealousy. It's more so you can see what others have achieved and you're wondering, am I doing enough? Yeah. Would I ever achieve that? For me, those are fleeting thoughts. I never sit in them because once you talk to people that, I have loads of successful friends and I know the, the background to their story. Mm. And there's not one part of me that will be like, yeah, I want to replicate your struggle. A lot of the times you might see someone's like amazing career online and there's a huge struggle behind closed doors in, in getting there. Yeah. And the, we, we shouldn't wish for what other people have because you don't know what they did to get there. Mm. So it's just better to stay in your own lane, 100%, to stay in your own lane, slay in your own lane, whatever the kids are saying now. Have you always been this way in terms of when you see people doing something that you may want to do? And you feel like, oh, am I doing enough? Am I going in the right direction? Or have you gone through experiences that have allowed you to kind of build this resilience almost? They're fleeting thoughts, 100%. Mm. And then I turn them into inspiration. So I'm like, so-and-so did that. Yeah. They don't have two heads. I can do it too. Why not go and ask them how they did it? And then a lot of the times I build friendships over that. Mm. And then that doesn't that doesn't leave room for me to be jealous. And to, jealousy, so, um, it's so crippling. I've watched people just be crippled and stay stagnant by jealousy rather just use it as inspiration mm. yeah and I, I'm just surrounded by amazing incredible friends and they tell me their journey is bit by bit and I'm like that's inspiring so yeah I would say honestly I would credit not suffering from jealousy as something that has helped me move forward and has there been a time where you've ever wanted to give up there's been times where I felt like quitting and I didn't quit what I needed was a break Mm. most recently I felt like quitting I took the break and I still felt like quitting and I had to reassess like what is the issue here do I feel like I need to go in a different direction and the answer is yes and for me that cultivated really in leaving resigning from my job and at the same time I managed to get a new job as well mm. so it was just a, all a bit crazy and it all happened at the same time and sometimes and it's okay for your dreams to change mm. I was gonna say sometimes it's okay for your dreams to change but actually it's always okay for your dreams to change I think it's important for your dreams to change that's something I struggled with maybe a few years ago where you know my dream had changed yeah and I felt like I'd failed like I felt like why don't you want what you wanted before? Mm. Like, this was your dream. Why are you quitting? Now I don't see it as quitting. I see it as growing. Because think about it. When you were five years old, what was your dream? I wanted to be a lawyer. You wanted to be a lawyer. Are you a lawyer now? No. <laughs> are you, would you, do you still want to be a lawyer? No, definitely not. So it's a positive thing that your dream has changed because mm. you've grown and you've evolved. When I was five years old, I wanted to be an Olympic athlete. Thank God I did not. Book. Do you know how hard it is to be an Olympic athlete? You can't do anything. Yeah, you have to win. I'm not cut out for that. Waking up five. No, absolutely not. 5 a.m. to train, train, train for like 10 seconds because I would have done 100 meters. That's yeah. all I'm good for. Um, <laughs> like, no, it would have hurt my soul. So I'm glad that I didn't stick to that. Mm. You know, I didn't stick to that because I'm not that person that wanted to be an Olympic athlete. Yeah. I wanted to be an Olympic athlete because I remember watching the Sydney Olympics and I was like, this is so amazing. I love the way they're so happy when they win. I had no idea what it took to do all of to that. To get there. Yeah. And I grew. I grew and imagine growing and wanting new things, but because you feel like you have to stick to your dream until you achieve it or until you've reached a certain pinnacle or deadline or whatever, um, a milestone that you have to stick to it. Mm. Um, no. What do you think makes people stick to dreams that they've had for a very long time? Do you think it's fear? Yeah, 100%. I think it's fear of 
the unknown because you've just you've had this image of what your life would be and I think that's why we get stuck a lot of the times when you plan your life out and we're, we're raised to do that mm. we're raised to have these like deadlines and I'm, what I mean by that is kind of more like a social construct of school so you know you do year one year two three four five six seven eight and you go on and then after year 11 you're like you go to college and that's when people started to struggle because college didn't go the way they wanted to do wanted it to or they didn't go to uni at 18 they went at 19 so then they feel like a failure Mm -hmm. but who said you have to do things at these particular times I struggled with that through my 20s I was like am I supposed to be married with kids now Mm. I'm in my 30s now I'm about to be 31 and I'm so much more content because I've thrown away those deadlines doing that it enables me to not stay be so stagnant with my dreams enables me to be so much more free letting go of that fear means that you can actually listen to yourself and what you want Mm. opposed to what you've told people you want Sometimes you're scared, like I've been scared of that when I'm like, I told everyone my dream and I was chasing it. Everyone was celebrating me for it. And now my dreams change. Am I a failure? I'm scared of what people would say, what people Mm. would think. I'm also scared of this new dream that I have because I don't, I haven't planned on what it would look like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to rewind a bit because you mentioned that you have a new role, but you didn't tell us what the role is. Oh, and what right. was your previous role as well? Okay, so I previously was at Joe Media, joe.co.uk, which a lot of people know for like politics Joe, football Joe, all the Joes basically. <laughs> um, and I was a social editor there. And I'm now going to become the managing publisher of BuzzFeed UK. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a, yeah, big shoes to fill. I'm nervous, but in a like, in a good way. Like not in a, ah, I can't do this way because the interview stage, ooh, I don't know if I can talk about that, but it was a long interview stage. Yeah. So through that, I did, you know, confidence did grow and I'm just like, actually, yeah, I do want this role. So I'm glad that I got it. So yeah, I'm excited for the change. I've become less afraid of changing jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, before I was just like, oh, no, I've been in this job. I know what it's like, but it is quite exciting. It's nerve wracking, but exciting as well to go into a new territory, a new role, new responsibilities. So I have an idea of what the role would look like, but I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out and transpires. Mm. Yeah. And you also mentioned as well that you took a break mm-hmm. and that's when you realised that you wanted to move on. What did you learn in your annual leave that made you realise, okay, this is the right time for me to leave? So this was, um, this break that I was talking about was a few years ago, I think in 2019. I went to Bali. <laughs> it sounds like an expensive break. <laughs> and while I was there, I realised that, okay, it was a quiet that I needed Mm. and while I was out there I just realized I need to move on so I wrote my resignation letter on the table in the villa I was staying in I didn't hand that resignation letter in straight away I came back I carried on with the job because of fear I was like because I had no basically I had no job to go to so the thing was I was like I'm gonna leave with no job Mm. intact can I do that now? I'm not sure because I've got a mortgage to pay. Yeah. But then, you know, I didn't have that level of responsibility of like worrying about credit and the bank chasing me or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I made that decision. That break showed me that um, I needed to bounce. There were other times I've taken breaks and I was like, oh, all I needed was a break. But in that occasion, I knew that sometimes you need quiet to know what you really want and what you're really thinking. And I've had similar breaks where... I was so relaxed. I was like, yeah, all I needed was to relax. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's a a few holidays where I've just like realigned my brain. That's what I use holidays for. So did you have that similar experience this time around as well? This time around, for maybe a few months, I knew that this probably may be a decision I need to make. But for full transparency, this time around, I experienced burnout to a degree that is probably inexplicable. Doctor's appointments, you know, getting signed off. It was just, it was dark um, Mm. for me. So I was just like, I don't want to be in such a dark space. What is causing that? There's various things that are causing it. And then having, you know, this job come up around the same time, it definitely helped me make the right decision. So there were so many different factors that all happened at once. I said, you know what, I'm going to leave Mm. and leave on my own terms. Had a great time, nice place to work, but it was time for me to go. And would you say just the journalism industry in general can be quite demanding on writers Mm -hmm. and how fast the news moves Mm -hmm. and you're working as a social media Mm -hmm. editor so would you say that also plays a part on the burnout the nature of our industry yeah 100% the nature of the industry and how creative you have to be on tap Mm. um, 
because, you know, we all have our like creative endeavors that we do outside of work, outside of nine to five, like you're doing this pod outside of your nine to five. And then there's a different type of creativity that you kind of have to engage in when you're doing it for I say nine to five as if we're actually working nine to five. It's like seven a.m. to to three or three p.m. to ten p.m. But you know what I mean, a full time job. So yeah, I think it is it is demanding on on the brain. When I kind of like explain it to my friends outside of journalism, they're like, "What? That's too much." I'm like, "Is it? I I guess it is." But you're just you just get you're used to it, it and you just get on with it because it's the nature of the job. Mm. When When you're out in the evening with your friends, you get a news alert. It means somebody was working. Yeah, you know, and it means. Maybe that person, it was outside of their shift, but they were called in quickly because this breaking news happened or whatever. So it is demanding and you have to write or you have to be creative in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the news landscape is changing on so many different fronts, but at the end of the day, you have to be creative, whatever mm-hmm. it is you're doing, whether you're making videos or a graphic or whatever. So it's demanding and I guess it's tiring, yeah. but it's a, it's a life we chose nobody literally we chose yeah it. no one no one no one actually <laughs> forced me nobody said they even asked me to be a lawyer so <laughs> they said maybe a doctor and I said journalism so I chose it yeah would you say it's different being a journalist as a freelancer because you've been freelance mm. how different was that from being like a staff writer or in a staff role I guess the difference is like as a freelancer, you have more of a say on the shifts that you pick, right? Mm. So you can organize your free time better, but then you still need to get paid. So you have a responsibility to ensure you're working as much as possible. And at one point as a freelancer, I was working too much because I was like, I don't know when the next opportunity will come. So I wasn't giving myself breaks. So that's the downside. I guess as a full-time staff member, you know, you know, you belong to this organization. You understand the brand. The brand is you. Should it be you? That's another question. Mm. And you have more stability, but it's 100% harder to switch off when you're mm. full-time because it's what you're doing all week and time off really isn't time off. I'm on annual leave at the moment. And yeah. I feel like I'm still checking my emails and replying to some emails because yes. they're urgent. Yeah. Even though there's out of office, but some things need to reply. Do you know, so, you, you need to go to a country where for some reason you can't connect your phone when you're outside <laughs> and just always be outside in that country. I did that <laughs> once where my phone was literally off for four days, switched it on. There were so many people wow, at work asking days. questions and you have to remind yourself that everyone will figure it out Yeah, because you've sorted out what needs to be done you've sorted out all emergencies and so when I did that um that one time I was like actually if I don't respond or if I don't check my phone rather because it's not that I'm ignoring anyone but yeah if I don't check my phone if I actually switch off everything will be okay the world won't burn that's true yeah yeah and in terms of navigating the workplace as Mm -hmm. a black woman as a black writer Mm. how did you find that or how have you found that I've had different experiences where I've felt lonely in a workplace before I've definitely felt like I was representing the entire black race and there's other times when I've worked in places where you know I've been able to have bonds with other black women as well you don't have to be friends with other black women you work with but it's really nice Mm. when you can have that because you can just be like did you hear that I'm not crazy, am I? Mm. Did, he, did he just say that? And then, you know, you take a trip to HR together. <laughs> <laughs> because there, you will, you'll just end up working with so many different people from different backgrounds who maybe need to be, you know, reminded that you can't do or say that. But then there's also the internal battle that happens within where, I don't know if you were told this growing up, but then you'd have to work twice as hard as everyone to get half of what they get. Yeah. I was even told you have to work three times as hard because you're a woman, as mm. hard as everyone to just get half of what they get. I haven't yet met a black person that goes to work and is mediocre because we feel like we can't afford to be mediocre. Meanwhile, you know, your white counterparts, they're enjoying the best life, being mediocre. And I've promised myself as I go higher up in life, I am going to give myself an opportunity to be mediocre and celebrated for it. Mm. I haven't yet done it because I'm so like set on excellence. But can you be mediocre? Like, do you I think want, you can allow I yourself want to, to? I want to, it's a goal. I want to do something so mediocre and be celebrated for it. You, you have some film directors, the most mediocre film, and they're winning <laughs> Oscars for it. And then you have a black director, it's like, they've got to be jumping out of, from the moon mm. to get, literally, Probably one day a black director is going to go to the moon, film there, jump down, film the whole thing. And they called that a movie. And finally he's won an Oscar. Mm. So a lot of the times, yes, in the office, it can feel draining because it's just, you can't switch your blackness off. Mm. Um, or do you co-switch? Or do you, or you just I, bring it full no, stuff to it? No, um, not anymore. 
I don't quote Switchy. This is what this is what you get from me. What made you stop doing that? I got exhausted. I got so exhausted and it's so much easier to be yourself. I say this all the time, everywhere I go, do you unapologetically. It's the easiest thing you can do. There's this inner conflict that you get from trying to be someone else and then your authentic self is trying to fight it. You go home and you're exhausted. Mm. Um, so yeah, I stopped code switching. Yes, there are certain things I won't do or say at work because I know it probably might see, be seen as aggressive, but to code switch, like to to speak differently, to behave differently, to do my hair different. I stopped doing that. You I, change your hair often. I love it. <laughs> and I used to, at the start, I used to be afraid, but I love changing my hair. So I was like, I'm going to do it. And you, if you like, you can stare and wonder. If you like, you can ask questions, but I'm going to do me. I'm going to change my hair often. It's going to be long. It's going to be curly. But when I first started in my career, I believed in only having straight hair at work. Mm-hmm. Now, anything, locks, that's my favorite. I'll go to work with locks. If you like, call me a criminal. <laughs> If you like, put the stereotypes on. And it's happened actually, to be fair, where I've gone into the office and they thought I was a cleaner. Because and you had locks. I was sitting down. This is what smacks it. I was sitting down and I was typing. And a man that had never seen me before in my workplace, a colleague, but he'd never noticed me before. So it was my second week, so he hadn't been around. Literally was like, should you be sitting there? And I was like, oh, sorry, am I in your seat? Me knowing that I was assigned a seat when I started the job. Oh, sorry. Yeah. But yeah, I was just like, oh, am I in your seat? Because I'd never seen him before. I'm like, what the heck is going on? He was like, should you be sitting here? I was like, yeah, I think so. Now everyone's gone quiet, right? And he literally looks at the cleaners. He's like, you should be with them. Why are you here? You, shouldn't, you don't need to sit down to clean. And I was like, wait. And I just was quiet. Wow. I looked at him and then a woman colleague of mine, you know, she started, she's like, um, let's say his name's Steve, right? His name wasn't Steve. Um, 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 Steve, she, she, she's, um, she, and he was like, oh, he went red. And then he started laughing. Oh, that's funny. I thought you was one of, he repeated it. Oh, I thought you was God. one of them. And then that's when I kind of like looked around. I was like, I'm literally the only black person that works on this floor. So I don't know what I had to do to look presentable quote unquote enough to work there but I'm going to have traditional hairstyles Mm. I like them also they're good for my hair (laughs) there's there's a reason they exist so and being the only black person in that was that a newsroom it was a newsroom it was a very traditional newsroom what was that like being the Um, only black person and why do you think newsrooms need to be more diverse as well (laughs) because you keep making mistakes if you don't diversify the newsroom you keep messing up And also you're alienating your audience. Mm. And what is the point of giving your audience stories that they're already very aware of? There's another thing where you end up being hired just to correct people. Mm. Like I've worked somewhere before where they just always came to me like, can you just check over this? And you're wondering, why are you asking me to check over it? And then I start reading it and I'm like, oh, now I know why you want me to check over it. There was some like race element Mm. in there, but also I'm not Asian. This is an Asian story. So it's just like, yeah, like, so it's just like diversify. And as you diversify, listen, learn. There's some expensive mistakes that some publications have made that could have been prevented if you just had a diverse newsroom, if you hired more than one black person. Mm. And as you've hired that black person, you listen and learn from them as well so that you too can know that is a footballer and not Stormzy. When mm, you print talking on Stormzy, yeah. <laughs> you did a little game oh, oh when Stormzy released his song Melbourne, yes. you do it, and you actually <laughs> oh you actually pretended you. I don't even know how to explain it, but you played a little game which tricked quite a lot of journalists. Yes, would you like to talk to us a bit more about that and why you actually did that? Yeah. I was minding my own business. But yeah, so, you know, Stormzy released the song Mel Made Me Do It, which is about his stylist, Melissa Wardrobe. And a lot of black women know that. Melissa Wardrobe is one of the most successful influencers, without a doubt, Mm. I would say, in the country, possibly in the world. But 100% Brits know the the influential power that this woman has. There was this one perfume, and I was like, hmm, and it's from Zara. First of all, I boycotted Zara because I used to work there. I hate the place. (laughs) And... um, did I not walk into Zara to look for this thing? It It was sold out. (laughs) (laughs) So that's just like, you know, the context of just Melissa Wardrobe is an influential person, but I knew for the life of me that Mm. when Stormzy put out this song, not, you know, named after Mel, the hashtag Mel made me do it has been around. Whenever we buy stuff that Melissa said, we say Mel made me do it. I know British newsrooms. I knew there was going to be this old white men or women or whatever, or maybe even young ones who would have no clue. 
I thought it'd be so funny to just say, yeah, Melissa was a school teacher that we all had. Every single black British person in the UK had a teacher called Melissa and she saved us from poverty and gang. <laughs> Melissa is the reason why I decided not to be in a gang. I can't remember what I said, like, you know, but I, I said a bunch of stereotypical stuff and I said, Melissa's one of the good blacks. I said that, like, good blacks is a very, very terrible term to use, like, and then other people joined in, clocking onto the irony. They're like, yeah, Melissa's the reason why I stopped shooting people. <laughs> First of all, we're talking about a school teacher that taught all of us, all of us, yeah. right? And everyone is joining in, like the irony, the irony of it all, you know? And I was saying, you know, I'm tweeting this because I know that loads of pe journalists won't know who Melissa is. So uh, to me, it was very obvious that I was being very sarcastic. Um, this went on for a few hours. Everyone's joining in. And lo and behold, the journalists saw the tweets. What is this? They don't know, so they took my tweet. And that's a huge problem in the newsroom where you're so under-resourced, not diverse, but you have to take tweets to be able to explain something. So yeah, um, unfortunately, um, two publications did fall for the tweet, did a whole article on it saying Melissa Wardrobe is a school teacher. I did inform those publications, by the way, that it was a joke. Um, what did they say in they, One publication like profusely apologised to me and they deleted the article and another just deleted it. They didn't say anything, yeah. Well, it's really weird because we're taught to fact check and mm -hmm. make sure things are true. Mm -hmm. But how come when it came to this story, you just assumed that you saw another black lady saying this, you mm -hmm. just automatically believed her? Yeah. It's really weird because yeah. for something else, you wouldn't really do that. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't have the resources to fact check mm -hmm. or they didn't want to put the effort in. And also they saw something extremely stereotypical about black people saying they were saved by a school teacher from gangs and crime. I have never in my life been involved in gangs and crime. But if I go to work and say, yes, I've been saved from gangs and crime. Mm -hmm. They would believe me. What yeah. do I know about gangs? I don't know nothing. It's Please. True. They'll believe you. They'll believe me. They'll be like, oh, I knew it. When I watched Top Boy, I just knew. I just knew that <laughs> that's how you grew up. <laughs> and what was interesting about that is that that tweet actually went viral. Mm -hmm. And you go viral quite a bit. And you don't even try. Like, what is your recipe? What do you do? And how do you go viral? Why do you go viral? What do you yeah. think it is? So a lot of the times I will tweet stuff and I'm like, I think this might go viral. Mm. There are a few tweets that I'm like, why is this gone viral? Yeah. <laughs> like it's the dumbest tweet. Like one time I tweeted something like the only thing that we haven't seen is an alien invasion because that week a lot of stuff had happened and it went viral. I was like, this was like the most offhanded tweet. Like, but other times I'm like, this could go viral. And yeah, it almost always does. My recipe is like tweet something that people would want to share. Mm. tweet something that they either haven't thought of or that they've thought of but are afraid to tweet when it comes to social media and you know shareability one of the main things that you have to think of is social currency it's a concept that I read in a book and I for some reason I can't remember the um the title of the book at the moment but it's not my idea and in this book basically and I read this book in 2010 and it still applies now and social media has changed so much. People share things if if they see it as currency. If you see like something on the floor, you'll pick it up if it's worth something to you, mm. right? So either you pick it up because you can show off to your friends and the people around you, look at what I found, or you can exchange it for something else, for something better. And you should treat content like that. So that's why I call content social currency. So when you tweet it, Think of yourself and your audience or people around, like, would they want to pick this up and show it off to their friends? And that's essentially what a retweet is, mm -hmm. what a reshare is. And when it comes to engagement, people use tweets and engaging with tweets to show off how smart they are, how funny they are, how informed they are. And that's what social media really is. Mm -hmm. It's clout chasing. Everyone's looking for an opportunity to either clout chase or to help someone else or to show off for themselves. But what when you've gone viral for the wrong reasons? So um, when you graduated from university, oh, you experienced yes. a lot of racial abuse on Twitter. Yes. What yeah. was that like? And can you talk to us a bit more yeah, about that? Yeah, so that's a tweet that I didn't expect to go viral because I tweeted that because I was happy I graduated. And I basically shared my story because my graduation story was a hella long. Like I just failed so many times. Long story short, I was in uni for like five years and I eventually graduated and I had persevered through it. And I think a lot of people were surprised that I was still in uni because in that time I was like, I don't think I'm even going to graduate this time. So let me just crack on with work. Let me just carry on with like trying to be a journalist and all of that. So I was calling myself a journalist. I was working, I was interning here, but I hadn't graduated and a lot of people didn't know that. So I think that surprised people that was one element but then I think a lot of people related to it 
they related to, oh, this is what happens when you, this is what can happen, sorry, when you persevere. So I think that was why it was relatable. And then it went viral, viral, viral for some months. And then it went viral again when someone saw it and they decided to mock my tweet with blackface. With It was just a weird thing. Like, that's actually just really hurtful. Like, it really upset me. And that's when I learned that, you know, social media is not just social media. It can actually hurt your feelings. Mm. And the way that I dealt with that, I cried. And then I wrote an open letter to the person, like, why did you feel the need to do that? And just why blackface is not okay and all of that stuff. And I did that for myself and I tweeted it out. And then that went viral and ended up in so many newspapers. And the irony is, I think I've worked for most of those newspapers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when I move to work there, they don't know that I've been in an article in that. <laughs> I don't say anything. But yeah, so that went viral again. And I think that went viral maybe because I was like, it was raw emotion because I just wrote my emotions in that open letter Mm. and the guy lost his job as well so wow and writing that was that therapeutic do you journal yeah journal journal. yes I'm used to that when it comes to emotions and big emotions my first response is to write so for me it was very natural for me to be like I'm feeling a lot of emotions right now why am I hurt so I wrote it down and I wrote on my phone when I was on the train and that letter was for me and I showed it to a friend and they were like why don't you publish this I was like, "Uh." so I published it thinking one person would read it and it went viral. But that was just like raw emotion. But when people have written things that are just, you're you're seeing their inner thoughts, Mm. you you relate to that. You're like, I feel that way and I didn't know anyone else felt that way. And I get that from authors when I read people's work. I'm like, even if it's fiction or nonfiction, I feel these emotions and I had no idea I did. Mm. And I had no way of putting it into words. But this writer has come written it down and now I get it and that's Mm. I think what's so beautiful about prose about writing about literature yeah is there a particular author that comes to mind when you think does that really well yeah Chimamanda Ngozi you really like her I I really do like her work I would say yeah um she's an author that really really does that well Maya Angelou as well um when she wrote I know why the cage birds sing Everything in that book that she experienced, I'd never experienced before. Mm. Like her early life, she wrote that book from, I think, age zero to 16, covering her life. I never experienced any of those things. And I I don't think I ever will. And yet reading it, I was like, I know exactly how you feel. And that is the beauty of literature. Mm. And I think that's, I know that's what literature is supposed to be. Because our thoughts, they're not real. Our thoughts, so our thoughts are in our head. No one else can see them, but they become a rea- reality when you share them. They become a reality when you experience them, when they impact your life. What a lot of authors do is that they put that down on paper and now they're everyone else's reality. Mm. And that's the beauty of it all. And, it, and I think that's why literature from the beginning of time has helped people. Even before people had pen and paper, there were storytellers, there were griots in society. There was always like, no matter, yeah, someone was documenting stories. How did people know this happened a hundred years ago? Because there was, you know, generations of storytellers mm. documenting these things and these emotions. And that's how, you know, you'd have like these elderly women in communities who would, you know, they, they had all this knowledge from stories. Yeah. And then they would tell their grandchildren stories. And that's why literature, I think, is very essential in humanity. If humanity was to, like, cease to exist in a way that we know it and all electronics and everything. You know when you watch those movies of, like, post-apocalyptic worlds, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything disappears, but you've just got humans. Mm. What you're going to ha- be left with is stories. Mm. Hundred years down the line, those stories might become inaccurate, yeah. but you still have stories. Mm. Yeah. I really love that. So who would you like to thank for your success? I would say definitely my parents because I, actually my mum, I remember growing up, my mum just, she just bought me loads of books. I've never spoken to her about this. Do you know that you just bought me loads of books to read? Like, why did you do that? Um, Did you know Mm. that this is what your child will become? I don't know if, I just took it for granted actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, she always just gave me books, all the books upon books like I'll read one book a day she'll go and get me another one to the point where she stopped buying she's like listen here's a library card right (laughs) we're gonna go to a library once a week and just pick up 10 books leave me alone (laughs) so I'll go to the library pick up 10 books and then I got older and I obviously started buying my own books and finding different ways to read but she set up that culture for me and reading is the number one key to be able to write 
Mm. So why do you say that? If you don't read enough, you won't be you won't have the fuel to write. That I hundred percent believe that. Otherwise, you'll be stagnant in your writing. I am inspired to write when I read. When I read, I'm like. I see the way like sentences are structured. It inspires me. It pushes me. I'm always reading all the time. And then when I'm not, which is rare, and it doesn't have to be a book, by the way. Mm. It doesn't have to be a book. What it other things be, do you like to read? It could be articles. It could be blogs. But it doesn't have to necessarily be a book. Or you could even listen to audibles. You can listen to podcasts. But it's about literature. And literature doesn't always have to be paper and words. Mm. Um, sorry, words on paper, rather. Yeah. So, yeah, Consuming literature is highly important. I would say anyone that has ever influenced me in doing that has definitely contributed to the writer that I am. Mm. Is there any moment that stood out for you that you you would say has contributed to your very extensive career? I would say being able to do things that I dreamed of, like specific things. So I'd always said, um, maybe from like 2008, I said, I want to be able to interview Jennifer Hudson. Mm. I was just like, it was really specific because I was probably in year 10 and Dream Girls had come out. And I liked Jennifer Hudson before that. Like yeah. I'd watched her on American Idol. I used to watch American Idol with my mum. So, and I just really liked when that, and then seeing her go from American Idol to Dream Girls, you know, she was a girl next door, then win an Oscar. Mm. And she wasn't, in those days, she didn't look like what you expected yeah. a famous woman to look like. You know, she was plus size and she was just very normal. And I just was very just like intrigued by that. And I always said to myself, I want to interview her. As I got older, I had, you know, my list of people who I wanted to interview increased. But when I eventually was able to interview Jennifer Hudson, I was just like... I'm actually living my childhood dream. Mm. Like I'm actually doing what I dreamed of in year 10 when I was, how old are you in year 10? You're like 14, 15. Yeah. Yeah. And when I did that, I was 29. So it was more than 10 years. It was like 15 years, mm. a 15 year dream happened. And it was so funny how it happened as well. Like um, I was sick the day before and I didn't know why I was sick. The morning of the interview, I had lost my voice. Not like a little bit, like as in, Every time I opened my mouth, I couldn't speak. Huh? <laughs> and in the middle of the interview, my voice started to come back. Huh? Yeah. Wow, that's a miracle. I gave my all. I gave my all. I was like, it was like a 10 minute interview. And then um, when the interview was done, my voice was back. And then two minutes after that, gone. I had completely, completely exhausted my vocal pipes. But I got the interview done. Wow. <laughs> and that was a big moment for me because I was like, nothing stopped me. Yeah. And it was just like... Some people be like, you've interviewed like so many people. Why were you so concerned about Jennifer? The reason was she was one of the first people I ever mm. wanted to interview as a teenager. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. What a story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So whose career are you jealous of? Ooh, jealous. I'll be honest. I don't get jealous. I think I mentioned that Earlier, prior. Yeah. So yeah, I, if I got jealous, I wouldn't be able to move forward, but there are careers that I'm inspired by, 100%. Mm. I hope it doesn't sound cliche to say I'm very, very much inspired by Oprah's career. Mm. Um, there's what something inspires you about it? I would say resilience. I would say how she kind of like pivots. She's pivoted so much over the years, um, but people still know she's Oprah. This question is interesting because someone asked me this as well. Like, whose career would you kind of like want the blueprint of? And I wouldn't want Oprah's career at all. So when I say she inspires me, it's kind of like her attitude towards work, right? Okay. But when it comes to kind of like a blueprint, I haven't yet found that person, which at first scared me. But then it, I realized that it just meant that I have to kind of like forge the way um, mm. for myself. And which is why I think it's really, really important for us to kind of like figure out our own lanes. It doesn't mean you're going to be the best in the world at what you do, but it's going to mean that you are the best version of yourself. And that's the most that I can give the world. Mm. So that's why I'm at that place now. And I think a lot of people struggle with like career passes because they can't see anyone that's done things the way they have it mm. just means that you've got to do things the way that you've got to do things yeah because there are things that I want to do career paths that I want to take that I haven't seen any other person who's a journalist do mm. so like what podcasting having my own show writing a film writing a book Mm. those are things that I would be like and when I say having my own show like a talk show that's when I'll be like yes I've lived out the career I want and 
maybe there is someone out there that has done it and I don't know. Yeah. But I don't think there is. But something I've actually noticed as well, a lot of creatives are now kind of breaking out of this mold of just being one thing mm -hmm. and people are less afraid. I think even um, Kano said it in his, after his Mobo speech, yes. just do what you want mm -hmm. and be that person in that period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm, that's something I'm learning as well. That mm -hmm. I think it's my mum that told me, she said, you're a writer first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Journalism is a form of writing. Yes. So you can write in every, many other ways. You don't have to just be a journalist forever, you, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. You can do other things because you can write and you're just kind of lending your gift to that practice or mm -hmm. medium. So yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of realizing that you don't have to just be this one thing, mm -hmm. which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. I'm seeing that more and more. I don't know why or what's happening. I don't know. I think there's more that we all have the sense of freedom a lot more. Mm. Our parents' generation were like, this is the job we're doing. This is how, this is all we're going to do. You hear like your neighbor saying, yeah, I was, uh, I did this job for 50 years. Same role, same salary, 50 years. Mm. Life's too expensive for me to stay at the same <laughs> salary. <laughs> so I think that's probably one of the reasons. And mm. it, it gives us more of a freedom to be like, I can do something else. Yeah. I think it'll be really important for us to also talk about how you actually write and what you do, mm -hmm. your practices, mm -hmm. and maybe just share some of your gems for listeners as well. So the first question is, what's your bad writing habit? Writing without thinking of how good it would look. Sometimes people write and they want the sentence the first time they write it to be perfect. I just write what's on my mind. Mm. Um, spelling errors, everything, I just get it out. So that's, I would say, a bad writing habit that it's deliberate because I'm just like, I want, I don't want to lose what's in my brain. So I just get okay. it out. And then I go back and correct it, make it neater. Do you think news reporting helps with that, that kind of skill? Yeah, hundred percent. Because with news reporting, you kind of have to get it right the first time you publish it, but you also mm. need to get it out quickly. There should be a happy middle where you're writing quickly to get it out, but you're writing properly as well. So there's mm. a happy middle with that. So news reporting is definitely helps me know that there isn't time to waste. Get, get it done. <laughs> get it done. Literally you've got two minutes to get that breaking yeah. story out get it out and what is the weirdest piece you've written i wrote a story about chrissy teigen's butthole once yeah basically she found out that her husband can see her butthole during sex and she didn't know that so she went to twitter and told everyone that like oh my god my husband's seen my bum okay yeah and that was the story and i was like i really hope my career improves after this <laughs> <laughs> but, how, but how do you navigate writing things that you don't really want to write about and have mm -hmm. you ever had to challenge a story that you've been commissioned and maybe you have said I don't want to write this yeah there's a story I don't think I can go into detail mm. um because of the implications but there was a story that was just I just thought it was really unfair towards the person the community I kind of had to fight for it to be actually reported on and um my editor at the time gave me the space to do that she said okay you've got maybe like one hour to find a different angle and I had to find it mm. there have been many instances where I'm just like I'm not really comfortable with it for example the Chrissy Teigen butthole it didn't you know it didn't hurt so mm. I got it done but there are other things I'm like this could be harmful so let me yeah stick up for it yeah I've been told you say yes to everything you don't say no if your editor says do this, do that. If they say jump, you jump. It's like you do whatever they say. So how do have you developed that confidence to be able to challenge editors? And also remember that it's also your name on the byline as mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an editor now, I appreciate when writers come to me with a, a different perspective because I need that. Like you, as an editor, you're doing so much. So as you as the writer, you need to know the story. Mm -hmm. And if you're like, mm, I think actually there's a missed opportunity here. In that instance... They've come to me with a solution, not just, mm. no, I don't want to do it. Then in those days when, you know, I'd say no to something, I wasn't saying no. I was saying, actually, I think I have a solution and a better way you can do it. So I would say saying no can be, it can come across as lazy. Like you just mm. say no. So what next? Yeah. So before saying no, come with a solution and that makes your no valid, yeah. more valid, more valid. Yeah. Who would you trust to give you feedback? I would say my friends. Uh, my friends are brutal. I'm very honest and they've got nothing to lose by being honest with me. Yeah. Any of them writers as well? Some are writers and others are consumers and that helps. Mm. Yeah. And that helps 100%. Yeah. And what would you tell writers who don't take on the feedback that people give them? I think it's arrogance to think that what you've offered up to people is going to be the best version. Mm. Yeah, it's completely arrogant and you're just going to stay in the same position that you are. That's just a brutally honest truth. Mm. So take feedback. I know it can hurt because you've put your soul into yeah. it and everything, but kind of like try and detach from it as best as you can if mm. you want to improve. If you don't want to improve, by all means, don't <laughs> ask anyone for feedback. <laughs> I get you. And um, what's something that you would love to write or edit? 
I would love to write my great aunt's autobiography. She's an incredible woman. She's an actress. And yeah, she did, no one's written an autobiography about her. She was one of the first actresses, black actresses in the UK. And then she went on to be in some of the most amazing plays. And currently, like, I'll be watching a Netflix film and she's What's like an name? extra. Her name is Tawo Ajayi Lysert. Mm. And she's had an incredible life. Um, she had a child at 16 in this in um, colonial Nigeria. Colonial Nigeria. Nigeria. That's a long time ago. And she wasn't married. And um, it was just a big thing. And then she came to the UK and fended for herself. And then she started acting and, like, so many, like, prestigious plays in the mm. UK. I wish I was alive to see all of that. And... She's lived an incredible life. There's so many different segments of her life. She's been in the Sydney Portier film. Oh. And I just think nobody knows who she is. Like, she's incredible. Um, so part of me is like, I want to write her autobiography so she can smell her flowers while she's still here. She's mm. elderly right now. But I've, I've not mm. even gone to say this to her. So I guess I have to now. It's on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's one thing I'd really love to write. And who is your favourite black writer of all time? I think you may know who she is. Mm -hmm. I would actually say Maya Angelou is okay. all time. I love Chimamanda and I know that's probably what you think, but Maya Angelou, there's something about her that is just extra special. It's her vulnerability. It's her wisdom. Mm. And I think I enjoy Maya Angelou because she began writing at an older age. Same with Toni Morrison. Like they weren't 20 in writing. Mm. So there was this wisdom that they came with that is just so inspiring. It's like sitting around your great aunties. There's something about older women that I just love so much. Mm. Their wisdom and what they've been through in life, it's worth listening to. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know it all. We don't. Mm. Yeah. Who do you write for? I write for the little girl in me. Okay. Yeah. I always write for the little girl in me. I want the little girl in me to look at what I've written and be like, wow, I can't believe the older version of me did that. What's something you will never attempt to write? I'd, I would never attempt to write a story that is not mine to be told. Mm. I have once been approached to write a book. It was a nonfiction book. And I wasn't part of the community that the book was for. I think maybe the authors maybe felt I was, but I was not part of that community. Mm. I was like, this is not my story to be told. So I, I suggested some other people. That could have been my first book deal. But I just remember looking at that being like, that's not my story to be told. And I promised myself to not tell stories that aren't for me to tell. Mm. Yeah. When you turn the book deal down, mm -hmm. apart from it not, not being for your audience or mm -hmm. for your community, did you have any regrets? Or did you no. think, oh, this is opportunity going to come back again? Like, no, no, I just, I feel like my opportunity will come. Mm. If I had taken that book deal, I could have done my research yeah. as a journalist, but there's some stories are so sensitive that, you don't want to just be like a spectator. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And lastly, what do you love about your own writing? When I'm honest and raw, it is beautiful. And that's what I love. It takes a lot for me to be honest and raw. raw. It's like emptying out a full cup. Um, but when I do do it and when I'm brave enough to do so, I love that the most. Mm. Yeah. Being vulnerable. Yeah. So now we're moving on to the last section, mm -hmm. which is basically called Advice You Give, where it'd be really great to hear your key, key, key gems that you would give to, I was going to say aspiring, but I had to like, stop myself. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Like that. but to other black writers who want to get into journalism or even just want to be writers, mm -hmm. what advice would you give them? Also even folding in the fact that you've done other types of journalism, not just entertainment. Mm -hmm. You've done sport, you've done politics, you've done mm -hmm. news, and you've done editing, um, and you've also gone freelance as well. Mm -hmm. So if you wrap all of that into one, what advice would you give to young black writers? Mm -hmm. I would say the biggest advice would be do you unapologetically? Because a lot of times you might go in spaces where you're like, oh, I didn't, I'm not sure if I belong here. Mm -hmm. Just be yourself in those spaces and you'll be surprised to find that you do belong there. Maybe there's no one that looks like you or is like you or thinks like you in those spaces. And this isn't a race thing or a gender thing. It's just more of a personality thing, really. Mm. Um, so do you unapologetically is one of the biggest, biggest advice. And while you're doing yourself unapologetically, no man is an island. Surround yourself with people who can help. Find a mentor, find peers. Like you said, you know, find a buddy or um, a sponsor rather. Mm. That's really important. Is there anything else that have that's really that you've carried in your career, mm. or something, or even advice you've been given 
Another piece of advice that I would definitely give is ensure that you improve yourself 1% every day. You don't have to make this massive improvement overnight, but if you're working towards 1% every day, eventually on day 100, mm. you're at 100%. Just never think you've arrived and you've made it. So when I tell people don't call yourself aspiring, that doesn't mean try stop trying to improve. I have a big distance to still go in a lot of the skills that I've acquired and skills that I'm yet to acquire. There's yeah. so much more that I can learn. And for journalists who want, who people who want to get into journalism, or even people that are journalists already, what things would you tell them to be considering going forward? I noticed that a lot of like younger journalists, they don't want to be adaptable. They've got this idea of um, the journalist that they want to be, and then they get into, I don't know, a newsroom, and they 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 want to do things this way, but that way doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. The industry changes so fast, and has changed quicker than the curriculum that you learn in uni. Mm. So you're in uni learning this is what journalism's like and yeah. then you get into a newsroom. It's changed. You know, there's more videos out there than articles. So I would say definitely be adaptable. Try not to be overly righteous. Um, mm. You find a lot of journalists can be quite righteous and um, standing on, on a more high ground, which is so important to know what you what your beliefs are, but are your beliefs keeping you rigid? Mm. And is this a belief, an ideal or truly what you believe? So I would say be adaptable is a huge, huge thing because things change so quickly change more than the seasons mm. in journalism and if you're not adaptable then you're going to stay stuck in the era that you want to be in mm. yeah wow that was a great conversation with toby i think one thing i really admired about our conversation or about toby is that she really knows how to navigate the industry without being restricted without being put in a box and I think sometimes that's what a lot of black writers do especially when we do one form of writing so for example in this case journalism and um, sometimes as journalists we just think we should do journalism for the rest of our lives but we're first and foremost black writers and writing is an art form and we're just lending that art form to different mediums so if you want to write a book if you want to write a tv show if you want to become a songwriter speechwriter there's so many ways that we can express our creativity i don't know maybe it's a fear of its loyalty we think we have to be so loyal to our dreams but sometimes maybe we should be disloyal to our dreams and try new things i think that's the biggest takeaway from this conversation so let me know what you thought about today's episode using the hashtag black prose podcast or find me on socials do you agree disagree or even have your own advice to share let me know and i'll catch you next time Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.